We are uh, going to start a new series this weekend called uh, Choose Your Own Adventure, and uh, we're going to be talking about different choices that we can make in life and how we can help uh, ourselves see kind of God's priorities and how he gives us the freedom to choose to engage those priorities or not. Uh, you guys remember in the 80s and 90s those books, Choose Your Own Adventure books? Anybody read those? Anybody? Yeah, everybody got beat up a lot, read those. And so the, the, uh, the Choose Your Own Adventure books, what you would do is you would read a couple chapters and then you get a few chapters in and you got to choose which direction you would go, right? So they kind of lay out the basic story for you. You read a couple chapters, you go in and you could choose to go through the door or you should choose to go down the steps or you could choose to jump out the window or whatever. And whatever you chose, the book would take you in a different Different direction and land you at a different outcome, you would choose your own adventure. And we were looking at that and saying that's quite a bit like the, how life works. Uh, God gives us a freedom. He gives us a freedom to interact with him. He gives us a freedom to ignore him. And it winds up landing our lives at different places as we, as we go. And the Bible would say that if I'm a Christ follower, if you've made that decision to follow Christ as your Savior, and he's defining you and directing you, that we kind of open up in our lives when we decide to follow Christ, a new set of adventures. And as we download God's word and we download the heart and the mind of God, the, the love of God that he has for us, it lays out different paths in our lives that we could take than the ones that maybe we would tend to generally get stuck with. So our upbringing, our culture, our personal history doesn't have to define us. We can choose these other ways if we want to, we can choose that adventure. I think the Apostle Paul was driving at this idea in Romans chapter 12. I put this in your notes. Romans chapter 12, he said this. He said, do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. And what Paul was saying in that bigger context of that passage was, listen, there's certain, there's certain um, patterns of the world. There's certain ways that the world, or we would say like our culture, teaches us to think. And there's certain things that are normal. There's certain things that everybody does. There's certain things that are normal in your family. You may have a, a pattern in your own life. And those things are what we're used to. And if, if we don't kind of think differently, then we'll just kind of fall into those ruts and those things wind up defining our lives. Well, he says here, instead of that, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, what that means is this. As I learn God's word, the Bible, right? And the Bible exposes the heart and the mind of God to me. So as I learn the Bible and learn the truth of Christ, my mind is renewed or it's transformed. I start to think a different way. I start to see different options that I have in my life. And as, I'm, as my mind is renewed, I'm able to discern the perfect, pleasing will of God. I'm able to understand what God would want and how God would think and how God would think and what God would want is oftentimes uh, the exact opposite of the patterns of the world. And so Paul says, don't just conform to these things. You don't have to live that way. You can allow your mind to be renewed and it opens up other options in your life you can function in a different way. So that's gonna be our series here for the next few weeks. We're gonna, we're gonna just kinda challenge the status quo a little bit 
And we're gonna look and say, you know, there's choices. If you're not particularly happy with the way your relationships are going, if you're not thrilled with, you know, what the kids are starting to value and be involved with, if you look and say, my roommates and my dorm mates are doing this, and I don't know if I wanna take my life down that path. Well, there's choices that you have. You don't have to just go along with what everybody else is doing. God gives us a different path, one that we probably wouldn't think up on our own. He empowers that path then through, through the, His Holy Spirit in our lives and the Word of God, and we can choose a different adventure if we want to and go down a different way. So I want to jump right into this idea. We've just chosen four or five of these here for our series, but I want to jump right into this idea, and I want to talk about how there's a pattern in our lives when it comes to how we invest our money, and there's a renewed way that God would tell us to, to do that, and it might shock you some of the things that Jesus had to say about it. Now, why do we choose this one? We chose this one, and God actually talks about money a lot in the Bible. He talks more about money than he does heaven and hell combined in the New Testament. Well, why would God do that? Because money is something that you and I interact with every day. It's a huge, huge part of our life. And most of the time when we think about money, we, we think about you know, greed and don't be greedy, be generous, or we need to be tithing instead of this. And that's not where we're gonna go in this conversation. I wanna talk about money as a normal everyday part of our life, like we would talk about relationships or like we would talk about our words or like we would talk about our time. Money is something that you've thought about already today. Uh, you probably, the number one stressor in your life is money. Uh, probably the thing that's driving your career path is money. Uh, you probably spent money already today. You probably stopped at Starbucks and put a second mortgage on your house and got a latte. Like, you probably did all that kind of stuff. You're probably thinking about you know, where we're gonna go for lunch and what that's gonna cost. So we came to first service so we can beat the rush to the melt. Like, like we're, money is something that we think about all the time and that's part of why Jesus addresses it so much because he knows that it's a normal part of our life. Money is also this thing in the Bible, it's really, really unique in the Bible, where money is one of the tangible things that Christ says we can govern or we can measure our spiritual health with. There's not a lot of those things. When you think about being selfless or your prayer life or time in God's word, it's hard to measure that, but Jesus says your money, your treasure, and your heart are always in the same place. So you can look at your money and it's a tangible way, it's a, it's a, it's a measurable way to look at your spiritual health and your interaction with God. So Jesus knew this, of course, and so when he was kind of discipling his disciples, when he was teaching them how to follow him, uh, he brought this subject up, and he tells a fascinating story in Luke chapter 16. So if you've got your Bibles, go there with me, Luke chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, there's some there under the chairs. If you wanna use a printed one, it's page 730 in those Bibles. And if you wanna use your phone, uh, just hit, the, hit our app, hit the Grace Church app, and hit live, and all the notes are right there, and you can follow along. So in Luke chapter 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples about how to view money. He's actually not really telling them what to do with their money. He's just like, this is the place that it should have in your life. And to explain this to them, he tells a parable. Now, a parable in the Bible is a story that Jesus would create uh, to ha that had a spiritual point to it. And if you understood the spiritual point, you would see kind of inside the heart and the mind of, of God with it. 
So he tells a parable, and then off the parable, he makes a few points, like very specifically off the parable, and all this helps his disciples frame up kind of their view of money. So verse one, chapter 16, the book of Luke, Jesus starts his parable. He told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors and he asked the first, how much do you owe the master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. And he told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. We'll pause there for a second. So that's the scenario. Jesus lays out this story, this parable. He says there's a manager. He's not managing the money well. His boss came in. He's going to fire him, right? So the manager knows he's going to lose his job. And then he thinks a lot like I would think. He thinks, I'm not strong enough to dig. I would think that too. I'm like, calluses, dirty, I could sweat. Nope, can't do it, right? So I'm not strong enough to dig. And he says, I'm too proud to beg. I I better figure out a way to build relationships with people so that when I lose my job, they kind of owe me. they, They owe me a favor. They can connect with me. So he calls them in. And there's a, there's a bunch of thoughts about what he was doing. The one that I agree with is this. He calls them and he says, what do you owe? Well, I owe this much olive oil. Okay. And I believe what he did was he erased his commission. Just take my commission out of it and you pay, you pay market price for it. Oh, thanks. How much do you owe? I owe this many bushels a week. You know what? I'm going to take my commission out. You pay this much. And he wiped out those commissions so they got a discount. And now these debtors owe him a favor. And in the parable, Jesus says, the master commended him. In other words, the master thought that was slick. That was slick. That was pretty smart. Instead of getting every last dime out of his last two counts receivable, Instead of looking and saying, I better get 500 more bucks in my bank account because I'm going to be out of work. What he did was he invested his money to create a relational bridge. He invested his money to create a a situation in which they owed him a favor that he would cash in later on. And then in the parable, Jesus says he was shrewd. In fact, the people of the world are better at that stuff than the people of light are, right? So Jesus, remember the context, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to think about money. He's not really telling them what to do. And there's other places in the Bible where God does that, where he's like, command the rich to take care of those who are poor, right, in Timothy. He's not doing that. He's just giving this kind of this broad overview and says, this is like the view of how my disciples would interact with money, and I'm going to teach them how to best use those dollars, right? So he lays out that story. Then In verse nine, what Jesus does is he breaks away from the parable now 
And he makes his first point directly to his disciples. He starts to explain the parable. So in verse 9, he says this. He says, you need to use your money to build relational bridges. Look at what Jesus said. This will shock you a little bit. Here it is. Ready? Verse 9. Jesus said, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus just said, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself. Buy the right of relationships with your money. This is how my disciples, remember he's teaching them, if you're a Christ follower, how do you view money? Well, if you're smart, if you're shrewd, you will use your money to buy relationships. And then those relationships will have eternal ramifications if you use your money in a smart way, right? Now, we do this all the time, don't we? Uh, We do it here at Grace, and then Jesus would say, you need to do this personally. So we just did Feed My Starving Children. We just celebrated it, right? Uh, Over half a million meals were packed up. Uh, Over 1,400 kids have a meal every day uh, of the year for the next year. What did we do? We used money to buy a relationship. When our missionaries and our, and our, uh, our uh, nonprofit organization folks go in and they do that famine relief, which is what will happen with those meals, that little kid or that adult or that mom has been praying for food, right? The, that food goes to the, those kids with the puffed out bellies. That's where that food winds up, right? It's, it's famine relief. It's refugee relief. It's the, it's the most desperate of the most desperate. When our workers and our kind of network of allies show up and that little kid has been hoping for food and we hand them food and say, listen, for the next year, you don't have to worry about where your food's going to come from. Some people in the United States bought this for you. That kid isn't going to look and say, God bless America. That that kid is going to look and say, thank you, God. And when that food is delivered in the name of Jesus, Jesus heard your prayer. And people that follow Jesus in the United States acted on Jesus' command to make sure you had food. They're gonna, there's an eternal reward, right? There's an eternal dividend on that money. Now, how did we get a half a million meals? We, Grace Church, the Grace Race, the kids, us, we bought it, and then we assimilate. We used our money, our worldly wealth, to create a relational bridge. When we collectively send missionaries, it is so expensive to send missionaries. Hundreds of thousands of dollars every year Grace Church spends on missionaries. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. We use our wealth to send a person that proclaims the gospel in another land. It's a very biblical thing to do, right? And other people find out about Jesus because of it. We are spending our money to create a relationship that has an eternal dividend. When you invest in your children, when you help the poor, when you give to Rahab Ministries, when, when, you, when you use your dollars, see... And that's what Jesus is saying. He's like, guys, this is what you do with your, if you're a Christ follower, you're not just spending your money on stuff because that's the pattern of the world. The pattern of the world is my money is mine 
and I'm gonna go take my money, and I'm gonna, I call it the upgrade lifestyle. I'm gonna upgrade my life. I'm gonna get not a car, the newer car, not a house, the bigger house, not, not a Galaxy phone. I'm gonna upgrade to an iPhone. Like I'm gonna I'm make that move, the upgrade lifestyle, and my money is going to accomplish that for me. The pattern of the world is that's what your money's for. Your money is to make yourself happy. Your money is to get what you want. Your money is, to, is yours, you buy. That's why you go to school so you can make more money. That's why you take a promotion so you can make more money. That, that's why you work hard and get overtime so you can make more money so you can have more stuff. And that's the rut that we all get in, right? Now I got more money, now I got more payments. Now I got more money, now I'm stressed out about having more money. Now all the stuff I purchase has to be maintained. And that's the, that's the, that's what everybody does. And Jesus comes in and he's like, well, you know, there's another choice. If you let me renew your mind, and if you thought of our relationship differently, we're gonna talk about that here in a minute, and if you've got a different view of money than what you've been raised with, there's another thing that you could do. You could use your worldly wealth to make friendships that have eternal dividends. Now, it's fascinating that Jesus does not make this a sin issue. So there's other parts of the Bible where he's like, stop doing this and start doing this. This is sin and this isn't. He doesn't do this with his disciples. He just gives a different option, right? So he doesn't look and say, you're in sin if you do this or you do this or you, not here. That's not what he's saying. He's saying there's another way to do it. You could choose something different. And if you chose something different, would it give you the outcome that you want? I just think about this. Everybody who participated in Feed My Starving Children this last week and brought your kids, did you have more fun doing that with your kids than if you went and blew 200 bucks at Chuck E. Cheese, ate bad pizza and stale salad bar and got chased around by a rat. What was more fun? <laughs> what are your kids still talking about? Because you go and blow the money at Chuck E. Cheese, what do they wanna do the next day? They wanna go to Chuck E. Cheese. They wanna go back, they love the rat, right? What, what gave you better conversations? What are your kids more interested in? A week later, what are they asking about what their money, are they asking like, where did the food go, mom, dad? What country do you think our food got sent to? I wrote a prayer on our box, mom, dad. What gave you the better return on investment? Jesus is not forbidding Chuck E. Cheese. He might have if it was around when he was on earth. He's not, he's not forbidding Chuck E. Cheese, right? I like Chuck E. Cheese. Jesus is saying there's other options. And when you use your worldly wealth to purchase relationships, if you think about it, the relationships that you have pur purchased is the stuff that you love in life. The stuff that you buy, if, if five years ago you made a list of all the things you really wanted, I bet you within five years later, I bet you have most of the stuff you wanted. And when you get everything that you ever wanted, what do you do? You make a new list. It's the upgrade lifestyle. 
If five years ago you said, I want to invest in these relationships and these people, and I want to help these kids out of sex trafficking, and I want to help this missionary go, and I want to help, you know, build and buy the extension so that we can have basketball programs, all that kind of stuff. Five years later, you look at that, and what do you do? You enjoy what your money purchased. See how that works? And Jesus says, there's a different way to do this. And you can break out of these ruts, and you don't have to live this way. You can choose your own adventure. Now, he goes on with it, and he tells the story. The manager, he goes, uses his money, buys wealth, or buys friends with it. So the first point Jesus makes is, listen, use your money to buy relational bridges. And then he makes a second point in verse 10. And the, the next thing he talks about, we call it a stewardship principle, is the way you talk about it kind of in church circles. But you'll see it here. Verse 10, chapter 16, Luke, Jesus goes on, you know, use your worldly wealth, verse 9, to gain friends for yourself. Verse 10, he lays out the, the first part of this principle. He says this, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. That's the first part of the stewardship principle. So this stewardship principle has two levels to it. And the first one is there in verse 10. And it's just a, a trustworthiness issue. If you can be trusted with little, you can be trusted with much. If you can't be trusted with much, then you can't, or with little, then you can't be trusted with much. And it's the stewardship principle. It's this idea. If, I, if I'm faithful in managing a few things, then I can be faithful in managing big things, right? And the principle is this, that the little stuff is always connected to the big stuff. The little stuff is always connected to the big stuff. You can't separate those two things out. So if you live in a house like mine, if you're a teenager or you're a kid, and you, live in, you have parents like my kids do, I, first of all, I'll pray for you because my, my kids' parents are nuts, right? So... But if you have parents like Heidi and I, then, then one of the things you hear all the time is this. You hear, when you leave the room, turn out the what? Turn out the lights, right? If your parents are like my kids' parents, you hear that all the time. Turn out the lights, right? Because when daddy walks in, mommy walks in, and she sees a light on that doesn't need to be on, what they see is money burning out of their checking account, right? Drives us nuts. When you leave the room, turn off the lights. In fact, at our house, it's not uncommon for you to get grounded from your light bulbs. I will take your light bulbs. I'll leave you one light bulb. And frankly, your eyes will go bad, but you'll be an adult before that happens. And then you can pay for it. I don't care, right? So I, I will take you. I do that. I ground kids from their light bulbs, right? So when you walk out of the room, turn off the lights. This is this principle Jesus is talking about. Here it is, ready? Teenagers, this will be a good one for you. Here it is, ready? Turning off your lights is directly connected to turning on your car. Turning off your lights is directly connected to turning on your car. Because if I can trust you to turn off your lights when I'm not around, I'm more apt to trust you to take the car out and without me knowing where you are every second that you're gone. That's the principle. It's very practical. So if you're not a Christ follower, this one still works for you. It's a very practical thing. Big things, little things are connected to the big things. That part-time job that is so dumb and the, the boss doesn't know what he's doing and I can't believe it, right? that part-time job is directly connected to your dream job. Same thing. Because as I learn to work in this system, I learn to work hard no matter what, and I learn to give my best even if I don't like my boss, that's directly connected to me one day doing exactly what I dreamt of doing. 
I'm going to learn all the things. Uh, when you go to, when you ask legitimate questions, like, why do I have to go to geometry? What's the point of geometry? I agree with you. I don't know the point either, right? I'm not going to be a rocket scientist. I think we all agree on that, right? So like, I, I get it. What's the point of this? The point of this is that the diligence and the hard work and the dedication that it takes to go through something that you don't like or understand is directly connected to you being healthy in your life. Because there's always a version of geometry class in your life. Stuff I just have to do because I just have to do it, see? So Jesus is laying out that point. He's looking at his disciples. He's like, if you can't be trusted with little stuff, you can't be trusted with big stuff. Little stuff's always connected to the big stuff. And then, this is what he does next. He deepens it then. And this next point is directly for Christ followers, all right? So the, point one is for everybody. Point two, for Christ followers, look at this. It's a stewardship principle. Verse 10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with little will be dishonest with much. So, deeper point, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? This is a spiritual point now Jesus is making, right? So, if I can't trust you with worldly wealth, why would I trust you with true riches? If I can't trust you to manage my property, why would I give you your own? Who gives true riches? Only Christ does. Who gives our own property? Only Christ does. See, as a, as a follower of Christ, one of the things that we believe is that God owns everything. That's what the Bible says. It says everything under the earth is his. Every good and perfect thing comes from him. So as a Christ follower, I'm gonna look at all of my earthly wealth because it's the context of the passage and I'm gonna believe that God owns all that. I don't own a house. I manage a house that God owns. I don't own my car, right? I drive a 2008 Yukon. I don't own a used Yukon. I manage the Yukon that God owns. I don't own my money. I'm given money from God that I manage for God. So Jesus is looking at his disciples, big principle, this is how you should think about money. First sub-principle, use your money to buy relationships. Second sub-principle, hey, by the way, the money's mine anyways. And if I can't trust you to manage it, why would I trust you with true wealth? Okay, ready? Now, if you're a Christ follower, buckle up. It's going to sting a little bit. Here it is. Ready? If you won't do the basic, measurable, tangible things that are tied to managing my money, tithing, crystal clear in the Bible, Micah says that when we don't tithe, we rob God. We won't tithe. We won't live a generous lifestyle. I use my money to help other people. I, I won't care for widows and orphans like James says directly to do. I don't care about the impoverished. Timothy, command those who are rich, right? Dealing with poverty and, and caring about the poor is in every single book of the Bible. So Jesus if you won't, guys, if you won't do the very, very like clear, easy peasy, not complicated stuff tied to money that can be measured, 
And then you say, God, use me to change my family. If, if, we, won't, if we won't, like, tie in to, like, the measurable stuff in the Bible, why would I trust you with this? God, use us to turn our culture around. You guys won't even, like, give back 10% of the 100% that I gave you. Like, you don't, you know, the poor aren't even, like, on your mind, and you want to turn the culture around? That's where Jesus is at on. He, he's looking and saying, guys, listen, this is, a, this is a tangible piece of it. This, like, you can literally look at your spreadsheet and measure this one. And, and you want, you, you're praying for these unmeasurable things that play out over a long period of time, and you want these desperately, but, like, the no-brainer stuff we're not even engaged with? The little stuff is connected to the, to the big stuff, and financially it's connected because it, it's where we position our heart. See, because our heart and our treasure are always in the same place. And so when I look at my spreadsheet and my heart isn't remotely positioned, big principle, use your money this way. Sub-principle, build relationships with it. Sub of the sub, it's a stewardship issue. And then the very last thing Jesus does is he gets to the very, very bottom line. Look at it. He says then in verse 13, this is, he just bottom lines it for his disciples. He says, here it is. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So he brings it to the very, very basic point. And he, he looks at his disciples. He says, listen, this is the bottom line. This is my view of wealth. This is what you should do with wealth. This is who you are in conjunction with wealth. You're the manager, the steward. And here's the bottom line. You're going to love your money or you're going to love me. And one of those loves is going to displace the other one. Your love for me is going to put your love for money in the right place or your love for money is going to displace me as the, the definer and the director of your life. But you cannot straddle this, this fence. And money is one of those unique things that you can look at your spreadsheet and you can actually look and say, I can kind of tell pretty quick if I'm trying to straddle the fence or not. And when that shows up on the spreadsheet, it's to reflect into my heart. And ultimately, I'm looking and saying, my, how I think about my wealth is directly tied to how I think about my God, right? And I can, I can tell that because I have conformed to the pattern of the world, that financially I just kind of exist like everybody else exists. I think that I earn my money and then I have the right to do with it whatever I want to do with it. That's my mindset on my wealth. It has mastered me. When my mind is renewed, Christ has mastered me. And when Christ has mastered me, I view my wealth differently. Now this is how this will show up. When Christ masters me in this area of money, instead of viewing my finances in an ownership role, I view it through an attitude of gratitude. 
I'm grateful that God allows me to use his wealth to benefit me and to benefit other people. It's a very different thing. When I have an attitude of gratitude, when I'm grateful for what God is doing for me, what happens is, is I look and I say, man, I can't believe that my heavenly father, he just Give, he gives me everything, and he lets me keep 90% of it. If I have an ownership mindset, I look and say, I can't believe God, 10% after tax, right? After tax, before tax, after tax, before tax. Right? I gotta work the edge, right? When I have a, a grateful mindset that God is giving to me, right, man, I get to live in 90%, and that causes me to live in the top 1% of the world's population. God gives me money. I have a roof. I have heat. I have electric. I have cable. I have cars. I went on vacations, right? We're certainly not hungry. In fact, we spend God's money to help us lose weight. What? That makes sense. Nowhere else on the planet. We, we look and say, man, God blesses me and blesses me like abundantly because in this passage, God isn't looking and saying, don't you dare get a new car. Don't you dare go, don't you go to Disney World. Don't you get that. Don't. He didn't say that at all. What he's saying is make sure that I'm running the show here Because when you receive from me with humility and gratitude, what happens is you give for me with cheerfulness. I get, this is a blast, I get to go give away God's money. I get to to answer, I get to be God's answer to prayer. I get to bless this person. I get to proclaim the gospel. I I get to be involved with the building of the kingdom of God. When money masters me, all my generosity is obligation. When Christ masters me, all my generosity is a reflection of God's generosity to me. Make sense? Jesus says, You're not, you, this is why you can't straddle the fence on this. And he doesn't give us a set of commands. Don't you do that. You bet. Shop at Walmart. Do not shop at Target. They're overpriced. It's not a set of commands. It's a set of choices. And then he looks and says, which one's going to make you happier? Because all the upgrades are going to need upgraded. But every dollar that is used for eternal purposes is going to pay dividends as it echoes through eternity. Now, I had the privilege of being raised in a home in which my mom and dad thought like this. It was a huge privilege. And my, my mom and dad, we never had a lot of money. We weren't wealthy by any stretch of any imagination, but we were fine. My dad uh, was a factory worker. He was a pattern maker, which is kind of like an advanced machinist. And uh, that's what he did. He ran the pattern shop in, the, in, the, in his foundry. And back then, in the 70s and the 80s, you could live a nice middle-class lifestyle being a factory worker like that. And so we did. We had a nice little ranch house, and we always 
had a couple of used cars, and we got to, we had a camper, so we'd go camping once in a while, and we had this great little, little lifestyle. But my mom and dad were incredibly generous people. They gave like crazy to their local church. They sent their kids to private Christian school. They, were, they paid to get my, my cousins out of the hospital. They paid their hospitals, all this kind of stuff. That they were always doing that kind of stuff. When I was 12, my dad had a stroke and our finances collapsed as a family. But this is what's funny. They never quit being generous. And so I grew up and I knew things were tight. Mom and dad were always giving money to this person and tithing over here and making sure this person had food. And they were just, oh, people live with us. That was their solution. Hard times, move in with the Bogues. I mean, that's just kind of the way that it worked. And so people were always living with us growing up. And I went off to college that mom and dad paid for, a chunk of it. And I went off to college and I got college educated, right? And I came back at 22 with a college degree. So I had learned all there was to learn. And so I started to instruct my parents about their, the, the lack of wisdom with their finances. And I would say, mom, dad, I took an economics course. And so you need to be investing and there's compounding interest and don't you know you should be doing this and everything. And my mom, my mom would say the dumbest stuff to me. She would look at me and say dumb stuff like, honey, the Lord is our provider. Whatever, mom. I went to seminary. I know the theology behind these things. And, and I would say, mom, you better do this. Honey, the, the Lord will care for us when there's actually a need. Whatever, mom. I have my doctorate now. You're so unwise about what you're saying. And we would just round and round and round. When, when mom finally quit working because of her health, they, all they had was their little ranch house and they had lived there for 42 years so they sold it and they had a chunk of money and we we're trying to figure out where they were gonna live and so I called them and said, mom, dad, want you, if you give me the money, Heidi and I will pull our money, we'll build a house together and you can live with us. So we did and so we built a house together and they had a big in-law suite on the back, brand new house and, and they lived in it and we kind of took care of them and, and they lived there for eight years until my dad passed away. When my dad passed away, my mom and dad were so disorganized with their money. When my dad passed away, they found out that he had a life insurance policy. Like they didn't even know that, right? So my mom got like $60,000 when my dad died. Phyllis thought she was a gazillionaire, right? She's like, I'll pay for everything. I mean, just money's flying out of the house. And so my, my brother got kind of, he's the oldest, and so we always dump all the hard stuff on him. And so my brother talked to mom, and he's like, mom, let's manage the money. And so uh, she decided to buy a new, she actually did need a new car, so she bought a new car, and we were all excited for her about that. And then my brother locked down the rest of the money in, a, in an account, right? 53 weeks of the day after my dad died, my mom died. And my brother and I are standing in her bedroom, and if you've gone through losing your parents, you know that you have to kind of wrap up their life. It's a, it's a very difficult thing to do. So we're wrapping up their life, and we're talking about the finances and this and that, and how mom, we couldn't find anything because she never filed anything. It's like, is it in that pile? Is it in that pile? There's a pile in the basement. Now you're just looking for all this paperwork, right? And we're sitting there and trying to figure it out. And we're, I remember standing in my mom's bedroom and I started laughing a little bit. And my brother said, what's so funny? I said, you know, all these years, all these years we looked at mom and dad and said, you better get your act together. You gotta get prepared. You gotta get ready. And lo and behold, that old girl, if she didn't die living in a brand new house, driving a brand new car with money in the bank, <laughs> right? God's economy. 
My mom and dad, whether they made a cognitive decision or not, I don't know, but what they believed was this. They believed that children who loved God and honored their parents provided more security for them than a retirement account. My brother looked at me, he goes, you know why mom and dad didn't have any savings, right? I said, no. He goes, they cashed it out to put you through college. I never knew that till they died. They never said a word about it. They believed that a godly inheritance provided more security than real estate because they had stuff. They had stuff. I know because I got stuck with all their stuff. And I took all their stuff and we sold it at a garage sale for 10 cents on the dollar. And the stuff that didn't sell, I piled into my pickup truck and took to the Goodwill and gave away. They had stuff. But they created eternal. See, their money is still working for them. Their daughters love and follow Jesus. Both of their daughters have sons who are studying to go into the ministry. Three of their grandsons are studying to be pastors right now. Both of their boys pastor churches. So you tell me what made them feel more excited. The new car that is now 10 years old and is on its way to the junkyard? Or all of the investment into their children, their grandchildren? Jesus isn't saying it's a sin. Don't do that. Right? Because wealth is relative. My car is nicer than your car. My 2008 Yukon is nicer than your 2006 Yukon. And your 2010 Yukon is nicer than my 2008 Yukon. It's all relative. My house is bigger than your house if it's bigger than your house. But if your house is bigger than my house, then you live in a really nice house, and I live in my house. It's all relative. That's stupid. It's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is there's choices. Choices. And when you look and say, this is the way, my mind is renewed. This is the way I think about wealth. I think about wealth as, as a resource to invest in the people. This is how I think about my, I'm the manager of that resource. Because this is who I am. I, I am. I am one that is mastered by Christ. And my love of Christ displaces my love of money. So I'm not going to conform. The patterns of the world, eh. Right? If I need a new car, I'll get a new car. Whatever. But I'm not living for this. I'm going to be transformed. And I'm going to choose a different adventure. All right, let's do this. Let's spend a couple minutes just being still and praying and thinking. And, and I'm going to, in a minute, I'll pray and the band will come out and, and uh, they'll lead us through a song. If you're watching online, I encourage you to join us in this time. And, and let's just sit and be with God a moment, right? And let's, let's think and pray. Give God some latitude in your heart and mind. Is there a part of your life that needs to be corrected Right? Am I, are you loving money? Right? You ask the question. I don't know. I'm just asking. 
Are you mastered by Christ? Think about the checkbook. It's one of those rare things in the Bible where God says that you can kind of get a grip on it a little bit. You can, you can give yourself away by looking at the spreadsheet, right? And then is there a relationship that you can use your wealth to create? Is there a better option that would actually give you more joy and fulfillment, okay? So why don't we bow our heads and close our eyes and, and the band will play a song. It's a great prayer that we can kind of pray as they sing it. And let's be with the Lord for a few minutes. Jesus, we love you. Holy Spirit, guide our thoughts right now. Bring your, your word to the kind of the forefront of our mind. Encourage us, convict us, correct us, rebuke us, train us in righteousness. So Jesus, just show us where you want us to be. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who has not yet invited you to be God in their life, Lord, maybe that's the, the big takeaway, that they've never received the forgiveness of their sin. They've never actually asked you to, to define them and direct them. Guide them in that way as well, Lord. So be with us in these moments. Push into our hearts and help us to, to respond to your love in all things. Jesus, your name, amen.